the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Author Stephen Sidley has just brought out a new book. It's called It's Mine, How the Crypto Industry is Redefining Ownership. It's his second book on the subject of crypto. The first was Beyond Bitcoin, which was co-authored with Simon Dingle, and that looked at the impact of Bitcoin on the world. It goes well beyond our understanding of finance and money and delves into deep philosophical concepts such as self-sovereignty and that murky concept we call freedom. Bitcoin's encryption and blockchain technology made it possible for the first time to secure digital value without trust, and then transfer this wealth anywhere in the world in seconds. Stephen's latest book, It's Mine, has some astonishing revelations. We think of NFTs or non-fungible tokens as overpriced pieces of art, but we learn that there are in fact digital receipts representing ownership of an asset, whether that asset is digital art or a physical painting. Taken to its logical conclusion, we may be on the cusp of an era of hyper-financialization, where every asset represented by an NFT can be tested for value in the market and then traded. The banks did this in the 2000s when they securitized mortgage loans, credit card, vehicle, and other debt. They bundled these debts into bonds, which could then be sold on a stock exchange, thereby freeing up capital for further lending. This process is called securitization. We're about to find out what ownership really means, and we're joined by Stephen Sidley in the studio, who, in addition to being an author is Professor of Practice at JBS, that's the business school at the University of Johannesburg, and he has a focus there on crypto and AI. Hi, Stephen. It's good to have you in the studio, and it's good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm good, and thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, Explain, if you can, in a few minutes, why our concept of ownership is about to be overhauled. Okay, so humanity has gone through a series of of levels of ownership dating back thousands and thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands of years. The first, there was a shared ownership. When you killed the elephant, you had to share the meat because you wanted to keep the tribe healthy. We moved into command ownership when we we settled into agrarian societies. But what happened with there is somebody who has got to the top, usually by violence, the headman, the tribal chief, the monarch, the feudal lord. And they owned everything and dribbled out crumbs for the rest of us. And then we moved into the area in which we now live, which is tight ownership and everything that we own I'm saying everything broadly there are a couple of things that don't apply has a title associated with it your house your car the computer that you that you bought from the store your identity via your birth certificate your registration of birth almost everything that you own not only has something that proves that you own it but you usually leave that in custody of somebody else And it's attested to by somebody else. It is not really owned by you. The most dramatic example of that is your identity is not owned by you because your identity can be stolen at home affairs, which has happened numerous times. Your home is not owned by you or your house, which is illustrated by the tragedy we had downtown Johannesburg a couple of weeks ago. 550 buildings have had their title stolen and your money is not owned by you. Most people don't realize this. Your money is owned by the government. It is an IOU to the, to the central bank. They can take it away as they did in Cyprus in 2013 and Lebanon I think in 2018, they can worse debase it by printing it. And it turns out in my research that every single civilization in the world that has gone under has gone under because the government of the day or the nation state has overprinted money. The Roman Empire salted gold coins with silver so they could invade some other place. 
and inflation, which is a debasing of citizens' money, is rife throughout the world. It causes the collapse of civilization. So if you think your money belongs to you, be careful. It doesn't. Right, which, of course, brings in the whole concept of inflation as well, because yes. inflation is also a degradation of your wealth. And you've seen places like Venezuela and Argentina and Zimbabwe where pensions that had been accumulated during a lifetime of work ended up being worthless. Yes, and if I could just add a comment, many times people will say, you know, well, what's Bitcoin based on or any other of the cryptocurrencies? And by the way, this is not a book about cryptocurrencies only. I hope we'll get into that. My answer to that question is, what is your money based on? Your money is based on your trust in your government to manage its economy. Now, you've mentioned Venezuela and other places. So there's Turkey, there's Argentina, where there has been Zimbabwe, obviously, the staggering left field case. But South Africa, our government, the dollar bought 7 Rand 90 13 years ago. Now you need 20 Rands, almost 20 Rands to buy the dollar. This economy has been mismanaged by this government. So how's it doing with your fiat? Which is better, the digital one which cannot be inflated or the fiat one which is inflated by overprinting or mismanagement? Okay, now many of our readers at MoneyWeb, judging by their responses to stories that we've written on the subject, they think that NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are a scam. And we saw the typical pump and dump schemes being played on the public in this area on, of NFTs. You get overpriced works of art, you know, these kind of cartoon looking characters that sold for enormous amounts of money. But we've seen NFT prices come down by about 90% during this bear market. Is that assumption that this is a scam and this is kind of, there's really no business case? Is that correct? Uh, no, it is absolutely incorrect. So first of all, I want to separate what happened with this sort of this tulip mania where, where digital art, often of questionable artistic value, but that's my opinion, was sold for outrageous amounts of money, $3.4 million for the face of an ape. Why people paid that amount of money for that sort of thing is not something that anybody can argue with. That's what somebody wanted to pay. It was a buyer-seller price. What's much more important than this and I want to give you a quote from probably the best financial journalist in the world, who is Matt Levine from Bloomberg. He writes a newsletter called Money Stuff. After looking at this NFT world for a while, he said, ah, I get it. It's a receipt. An NFT is something that determines immutable ownership of something else. So you bind the NFT to an asset, whether that be a digital asset like art, a digital asset like your journey through the internet, a digital asset like your IP, your written IP, which is in digital form, or to a physical asset. The NFT is a thing that guarantees immutable ownership and it can't be seized. And one of the most important stats I would like to throw out in this podcast, because I sometimes forget and then I'm, I'm bereft that I forgot it, is the killer use case for blockchain is real-world asset tokenization. You talked about securitization earlier in the podcast. This is securitization via crypto in which an asset is tokenized into crypto tokens. Now, the Boston Consulting Group brought out a study a couple of months ago. This will uh, make up 10% of global GDP by 2030, $16 trillion dollars worth of assets will be tokenized on the blockchain. It is the killer use case. You don't see it in the newspapers because it's not sexy. What you see in the newspapers is fortune ones, fortunes lost, and lots of crooks. The real killer use case is not in cryptocurrency. It's in tokenization. And tokenization is a form of NFT. Right. So that, that is basically tokenization being where you have a digital token or receipt 
yeah. for uh, it can be a real world asset or it can be a digital asset. Correct. And you can then trade that because it's digital. You can have somebody who's got a, a lovely piece of art or a, a rugby ball that is signed by Sia Khaleesi, something like that. And you can trade that without ever moving that that rugby ball around. You know, it's a digital receipt that is being traded. Yeah, more more than a digital receipt, you're trading the receipt. You're trading the ownership title, the digital title for the goods, whether it be digital, physical, you're correct. But more importantly, the mathematics that is embedded in that token means that it is incontrovertibly, provably you who own it. Cannot be debased. Cannot be inflated. Cannot be deformed. Cannot be lost. In your earlier book, which is called Beyond Bitcoin. A uh, very good book as well. Well written. I've Thank got to you. Compliment you on that. You explained that you uh, that we were on the cusp of something truly historic with Bitcoin. That uh, we now have the ability to secure digital value and insulate ourselves against reckless money debasement. Okay, so we just spoke about that and how central banks around the world are going to find this a real challenge now that you have a form of money which cannot be debased. So Bitcoin was born in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and was maybe the most revolutionary act of modern times. Your latest book, uh, you give examples of the metaverse, digital identity, self-sovereignty and how this might play out in the near future. Give us your view, what this future might look like. And people may have a little bit of difficulty understanding, what do we talk about? Uh, What do we mean when we talk about self-sovereignty? Okay, I'll get to that second question later, but the first one is critical because, you know, the the era from 2009 to about 2015-16 was all about Bitcoin. And then Ethereum, another blockchain, uh, arrived, which allowed people to write their own programs, and we started getting other creatures. And about 2020, as I was writing the earlier book, I noticed in the corner of the horizon this thing that confused me, which was the NFT, and people were paying absurd amounts of questionable art. But at the same time, Garen, there was, there was a, a series of other creatures emerging from the swamp, all based on the same crypto. You've mentioned a few, digital identity, metaverse, there's Web3, there's Stablecoin, there's GameFi. All of these are separate industries which have been completely upended by the prospect of number one, digital property rights. How does the metaverse differ from the old 3D environments we used to play in the 90s and early 2000s? You can own your property. Given that we spend more than eight hours a day, some of us, and some of us even more, more than that, on the internet in a digital world, it is absolutely shocking that we have no property rights in there. Well, you can use cryptocurrency to pay, but if you go into there and you go, let's say you spend a typical day and you move from one site to the other and you're doing Gmails and WhatsApps and you're going to a travel site and what, 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 that journey is monetized by other people. And you have no say in the matter. If those journeys were connected to an NFT unlockable only by you, you can insist on payment for when they give it to the advertisers. So there is a new world that has been enabled by NFTs that is property rights. I've forgotten your second question. Well, let, let's come back to that. So, okay. I mean, I think with the, uh, the, the this whole concept about who owns your your intellectual property and your work that you do on the internet. Right. Google, for example, has basically taken your search information. That's right. What are you interested in? And they've monetized this. Yes. Um, and George Gilder wrote the book called uh, Life After Google. Yes. Where he talked about this very thing and saying what's going to happen is that people are going to take back ownership of their footprints that they leave across the internet. You already start to see that coming out in the, with the Brave browser, for example, Correct. where you, you can actually earn 
crypto through just using their browser and they have their own search engine. So I think it's going to be an interesting time. The, the, the self-sovereignty thing, though, is, is the thing I really want to zone okay. in on. So talk about that. Okay. Self-sovereignty refers to an historically growing aspiration of human beings to be responsible for their own autonomy which has moved from thousands of years ago where you had none to what I talked about, the command economy where you had very little to the title economy where we, we now live, where we have some autonomy. We can buy houses and we can have bank accounts and things to a epoch where we own what we please. But more importantly, where that ownership is secured and we can hold it, sell it, trade it, reveal it or donate it, not only at our discretion, but without Anybody else without any third party attesting to it or holding it in custody. Now, I'm going to give you another shocking statistic. I looked into how big the trust industry is, not as in a trust, but as in institutions that you trust, banks, insurance companies, your accountant, your lawyer. It turns out to be 35% of global GDP. It turns out that 35% of all the assets in the world are in the custody of people who don't own it. With crypto, in principle, those third parties have no reason to exist. So when you see this massive resistance among regulators, including banks, okay, so regulators and their proxies, which be banks and insurance companies, to push back on crypto and to put people into jail, it is because the power center of trusteeship is severely threatened by this. Now, I'm not about to say that crypto is about to take over the banks. It's not true. What's going to happen is the banks are going to have to incorporate the stuff. Human beings still need to talk to other human beings. Human beings do not want telemetry, do not have the telemetry or broadband to, to, to work out how to use a crypto wallet. And they don't want jargon. They just want to pick up their phone and they say, I lost my password. Can I get a new one? Or will you EFT me? So there, there is an interface between the humans and the technology, which is still fairly immature. But at the core of this thing, the magic of cryptography will change every single industry. I will make a prediction to you, and we'll come back in five years, that all payments will be on crypto rails within five years. And I'll give you an example of what happened two weeks ago. Visa announces that they are going to put their merchant settlement on crypto rails, along with a blockchain called Solana and a blockchain called Ethereum, for all their merchants that travel through two very big acquirers. 500,000 merchants are going onto crypto rails. Why is this important to the merchants? Because right now, when you go into pick and pay, and you pay, you walk away immediately. It's an instantaneous settlement. It takes a few seconds. The merchant, if that credit card was from Armenia or Kazakhstan or, or Chile, the merchant doesn't get settled immediately. The merchant will get settled the next day, two days later, sometimes weeks later, if it's a real third world country. With the crypto rails, the merchant now gets settled in five seconds. That is a prospect, a value proposition for the merchants, which is um, an offer they certainly can't refuse. And when Visa did this two weeks ago, there was uncertainty and acid in the stomachs of banks worldwide. Right, uh, because Visa, I mean, if I remember the stats, they can do, uh, is it 24,000 transactions per second? Right, and you think, well, that's a lot. But when you look at all of the transactions that have been done on Visa cards around the world, uh, at times that can get a bit strained. Solana, I believe, can do uh, multiples of that. Well, in fact, uh, that issue of number of transactions per seconds, which has been an Achilles heel of much of the crypto's world, 
um, Bitcoin settling a block in 10 minutes and Ethereum settling a block in about 15 seconds. All of that stuff is disappearing via what's called layer two technologies. I, I don't want to talk technology either in this podcast and I guarantee your listeners there is no technology in my book whatsoever. There's no jargon. Yeah. Uh, the Lightning Network, which is an additional layer above Bitcoin, does a million transactions a second. Yes. Yep. I mean, basically, you're talking about batch processing, where they, they take all of these transactions, um, group them together, and they just ram them through yeah. in, in, in a very efficient technological ma- uh, manner. Yes. Okay. Now, you spoke about trust. So this issue of trust is it's central to the existing financial system. You bank with ABSA or Standard Bank because they're trusted and they're financially solid. You look at their financials. It looks like the right place for you to, to keep your money. When it comes to crypto, the entire system requires no trust at all. The whole thing, this is why we talk about a a trustless system. Now, with decentralized finance, you can borrow. This already exists. You can borrow from anyone without even they knowing your name. They don't even even have to have an email address. This is a phenomenal leap in functionality in the financial system, right? So, and yet in the book, you talk about, and I'm talking about the book, It's Mine. Yeah. I'm going to use the shortened version of it. It's mine. Uh, you talk about Soulbound and other projects where there's some behavioral elements that can be appended to your digital identity, such as your track record in paying back previous crypto loans that you may have made. What do you think? Who wins this race? Those who want anonymity or those who want to know a little bit about you, even if they don't know your name? Yeah, so... so if I have to raise this up to a philosophical level, this entire debate about anonymity and not knowing somebody's name and, and, and is, is, sits in the tension between the individual and the institution or the individual and the state. There's, there's a tension between those things. Total anonymity is, is an anathema to governments because they want people to pay their taxes and they want them to be sanctioned if they don't pay their taxes. So they try to stay away from anonymity all the way down to the exception of cash. The cash in your wallet, you can go into a liquor store and buy five bottles of cane spirit and nobody will know, even though you don't want anybody to know. It's your cash. It's an anonymous transaction. In the world of crypto, you can move enormous amounts around anonymously and you can avoid being seen, which is a problem for institutions and governments. So who wins this race? CBDCs are coming, which is basically cryptocurrencies which are distributed by government. And, and it stands are, for central bank digital currency. Right. Yeah. And they are grappling with this exact problem is people want anonymity and they don't want anonymity. So there's a proposal in the UK, their CBDC, they won't look at your transactions up to £2,000. I think it's £2,000, which is ridiculous because you can't put a hard number on what's anonymous or not. The anonymity and privacy issue, you come back to your question about the sovereign individual, is an aspiration of us as humans. We want to be private. We don't want to be overseen. And we don't want to have to trust other people other institutions or people with our valuables, not only money. Why don't we want to trust them? Because when there are human beings, there are breaches of contract. Our courts are filled end to end with cases that are actually insults to ownership. They are violations against ownership because there was third parties involved, because there was a bad actor in the bank, because there was a crooked policeman, because there was a bad guy in the traffic department. Crypto just wipes that entire stuff off. And there's this continual tension between power centers and individuals who want to be sovereign. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the uh, the Bitcoin white paper by Satoshi, 
the whole idea there, it was a response to the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, the, the first thing that he envisaged was encryption technology, mm-hmm. uh, which allows for uh, th- that, that you don't need trust and mm-hmm. that you can have anonymity and that you can have a form of money which cannot be debased by anybody. And right. it's not really owned by a central bank. No. So you're getting to uh, – we've moved away from that, and I've, I've sort of – I'm sure you've observed this too. You've got regulators, they're jumping on the space and they, they, they want to make sure that they don't let this tiger loose without uh, you know, having some control of it. Where do you think this goes? Okay, so let me talk about the regulators because I'm, I'm suddenly in sort of listening to myself talk. I'm in danger of, of sounding like a breathless evangelist and I don't want to do that because I have a skeptical raised eyebrow about much in the crypto space. Most particularly how many people are prepared to steal without shame or blinking if they can. That was the most shocking revelation to me, how many people just went and then took stuff that wasn't theirs. Maybe I was, I was brought up differently. We were brought up not to do that. Nevertheless, I think re- regulation is critically important to the maturing of the crypto world. And it has now started to happen. You have uh, jurisdictions like Switzerland, like Singapore, like Portugal, like Dubai, like the UK coming up, who are saying to themselves, this is a radically transformative technology because it it changes ownership. We need to put in a brand new set of legislative and regulatory tools in order that we can keep the bad guys out. America's slowest to this game, and the sad thing is that nobody does anything until America does something. There is a slow opening of the door to regulation. As you know, BlackRock, which is the largest asset manager in the world, they, they manage over $13 trillion. They have applied for a Bitcoin ETF. Um, there is a great amount of pressure to approve an ETF. When that happens, the floodgates open, and the entire crypto world, sadly, is just waiting for this ETF application of BlackRock and others to be approved. I want to say again, this sector needs regulation. Otherwise, it is the Wild West. And in the Wild West, there are bad guys, good cowboys and bad cowboys. So I think regulation is important. I think that these crypto creatures that I talked about, the currencies, the NFTs, the Web3, the metaverse, all of that stuff, will live side by side with uh, traditional means of doing things. And I don't think there's a winner. I think there's a collaboration. All right. So let's start wrapping up here. Give us your thoughts on where you think this evolving understanding of ownership is going. So I'm thinking when you were, when I was reading the, the book uh, about communal ownership in Africa, and this of course has been the, you know, the conflict between colonialism and traditional ownership, uh, understanding of traditional ownership in Africa. Uh, I think of the Bafokeng tribe, for example, where uh, they occupied this land for hundreds and hundreds of years up in Northwest Province. You know, along came the, the the British and the Afrikaners, and all of a sudden you have this thing called a title deed on a piece of land. You know, and the newcomers are introducing uh, this title deed. Uh, communal ownership doesn't have that uh, that concept underpinning it at all. Where do you think this goes in future? Is everything, does it need a title deed? Is there such a thing as the commons, you know, which is another part of history, which uh, where what was a shared asset suddenly becomes owned by the most privileged? Right. So, so there is an entire chapter on the book um, that discusses one of these creatures that I talked about, these crypto creatures, which is called decentralist autonomous organizations. Those organizations are 
owned by its crypto users. There is no central ownership. So that whatever that organization's purpose is, whether it is to buy a copy of the American Constitution, which is the most famous one of these, or to set up a new charity, or to buy a whole lot of land, there are communal members who join it. All of them are given an NFT, and that NFT comes with it, identical rights for each one of the members. And uh, so your 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 desire to see the title deed, the hierarchical title deed, not be the takeover of everything, is solved once again by the beauty of what can be done on the blockchain through DAOs. They are incredible things. Let me give you an example because you do this every day, right? So you know what partnerships and corporations and limited liability companies are. They're human fictions. We made up those rules in order to kind of organize a, a business of common purpose. But they're fictions. They're pieces of paper. And they are onerous and sclerotic and ossified. And anybody who's tried to set up a corporation or a CC just you know, it sucks your will to live out. These DAOs can be put together in three days and they can have a smart contract which defines what would be in a memorandum of incorporation or a shareholders agreement. When these guys tried to buy the American Constitution, one came up for sale. Sorry, it's a copy of the American Constitution. One came up for sale. They were able to raise $47 million in four days by setting up a DAO in 12 hours with a smart contract. You try setting up a corporation in 12 hours to raise $47 million. So in answer to your question, there are mechanisms within these crypto creatures that enable both communal ownership and individual title deed ownership. A final question. Uh, how's it going at the University of Joburg? Is there a lot of interest in the crypto space and AI, uh, or is it still very much fringe? <laughs> Funny you should mention crypto and AI. Crypto and AI, from my perspective, are the two most important um, transformative technologies of the 21st century. There is an enormous amount of interest in both at UJ. There are not not that many lecturers because it's a new space, so there's not a lot of legacy teaching that has been done. Uh, University of Johannesburg, in fact, JBS now houses the AI Institute under South Africa's Fourth Industrial Revolution program. And there is uh, hardly any student out there who's not thinking about AI or crypto, and more importantly, where the intersection of those two things are. And if we had another hour, <laughs> Karen, I'd be able to tell you where the intersection lives. Fascinating discussion. Stephen Sidley, I urge everybody to go and get a copy of this book because it really is uh, quite a revelation what is happening in terms of the field of ownership and what does ownership mean and what it has meant historically. And, you know, you're just talking there about cooperatives and, and corporations, closed corporations and all, all that kind of thing. These being these being fictions, all of this is quite beautifully detailed in the book. The book is called It's Mine, How the Crypto Industry is Redefining Ownership. Stephen, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.